Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we have a great conversation with the author Jay Cost about his new book, James Madison, America's First Politician. Interesting discussion about Madison and Jefferson, Madison's troubled time as the Secretary of State in Jefferson's second term, and of course, Madison's presidency. And of course, Dolly Madison and the impact she had on his presidency, and in fact, the impact she had on the White House. At a time when there are a lot of new books on James Madison, uh, Jay Cost is trying to find an intellectual trajectory to explain the seeming turnabout that Madison had when Jefferson came back from Paris in 1789. He writes, he served well as ballast for a friend like Jefferson, whose imagination often got the better of his reason. Oh my. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Sir, I would like to speak with you about James Madison and a recent biography of him titled James Madison, America's First Politician. Would you agree with that subtitle, sir, or is it overstated? Well, we didn't really use the term politician in my time. We thought of Aaron Burr as a politician because he was more interested in winning than he was in standing for a certain set of political principles. And the reason why so many people found fault with Burr was because he didn't really seem to, to have any statesmanship in his character. He was a political opportunist. And so I, I hesitate to call Mr. Madison a politician. Of course, we were all politicians in some sense of the term. But Madison is one of the most high-minded individuals who ever lived in America. Uh, he's, as you know, the father of the Constitution. He's the author of the Bill of Rights. He was the fourth president of the United States. He was a splendid secretary of state during my two terms as president. And late in life, one of the last letters that I ever wrote was to Madison. And I said, if ever there was an administration in the history of the world that was high-minded, that existed to to promote the rights and happiness of humankind. It is the one that you and I had the joy of presiding over uh, between uh, 1800, my two terms, and 1816, his two terms. And so the word politician sticks a little bit in my throat, I must say. The author of the book, Mr. J. Cost, writes that Madison was, quote, a brilliant and deep thinker who made careful arguments about what Republican government should look like. Oh, indeed. Uh, Madison was the most penetrating intellect of the founders. He might not have been the greatest intelligence. That probably has to go to Alexander Hamilton. But Hamilton wasn't a thinker. Hamilton was a, a policy man. He was a, he was a brilliant financier and a, and a political strategist. But Madison thought about things, and, and I'll tell you what he thought about most— and that is, what is human nature? What is this, this being that we're trying to craft a government around? As you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, in some ways a, an irrational optimist. I believe that humans are born good, that they are capable of indefinite perfectibility, 
Madison was more somber. He looked at humankind and saw both good and bad, and he he realized that any government has to take into account the actual nature of man, that it wouldn't do us any good to posit a human that didn't actually exist and try to create him over time, that in the short term we must craft a government that can actually rein in the passions of mankind, but also liberate his great creativity and his high-mindedness. The author also states that Madison was not a visionary, and because of this, he, quote, served well as ballast for a friend like Jefferson, whose (laughs) imagination often got the better of his reason. Is that a fair statement, sir? Well, I will not uh, attempt to... uh, quibble with uh, the author's characterization of me, but I do think that Madison served as a kind of ballast, that I am prone to flights of uh, imagination about the possibilities of, of something like a utopia, and that in the end, everyone would attempt to be like our America. And Madison frequently Uh, in our letters, which we exchanged uh, all the time in the course of our lives, would try to bring me down a little bit more into a more realistic and sometimes more somber view of possibilities. And so I think he was a very important ballast in my life, a great sounding board for me. But I I don't think he was a visionary um, in the sense that He was spinning out an ideal republic, but I think he was a visionary in another sense, that he, he looked at what is possible for humankind, and he wanted to get us all the way up to that mark. And not many political figures have ever really wanted to do that. Thank you so much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. citizens and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. I'm your host, David Swenson, joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And this week we have a very special guest to talk about, well, a gentleman whose name comes up on the show very often, and that would be James Madison. Here to speak with us this week about his new book is the author Jay Cost. Jay Cost is the Gerald R. Ford non-residential scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. This is his fourth book. Previously, he has a book called Spoiled Rotten, How the Politics of Patronage Corrupted the Once Noble Democratic Party and Now Threatens the American Republic. He has previously written the Horse Race blog at Real Clear Politics. He's written for the National Review. And we're delighted to have you here on the Jefferson Hour. Jay, we're Jeffersonians here. And, you know, we like to say that Jefferson was fortunate because he had James Madison at his side. And here's Madison, who in some ways gave his life to the success of Jefferson, who who could not have been an easy friend, collaborator to try to manage. Yeah, I think that's very well put. And I think that Madison and Gallatin are both 
instrumental in Jefferson's success. They both bring very formidable skill sets to the table. And I, I think a very important feature of both of them is that neither Madison or Gallatin ever presumed to jump in front of Jefferson. And I think that that was one reason why he could count on them so much. I talk in the book about Monroe, James Monroe, you know, effectively trying to line jump Madison in the 1808 presidential election. And it opened up a breach between the two of them that wasn't fully healed until, you know, 1810. And that was really out of necessity because Madison couldn't deal with Robert Smith, the secretary of state. Jefferson and Madison never had even an inkling of that kind of rivalry between the two of them, which I think is what made them such a good working partnership. Yeah, and that 188 election is fascinating to me because the radical Republicans wanted Monroe, and they were a little disenchanted with uh, the more somber uh, Madison. And so Jefferson wrote one of his famous Jefferson letters saying, oh, I see before me the, the possibility of a conflict between two people I greatly admire. You know that letter. And he was able to talk talk Monroe off the ledge and let Madison have his, his first run at the presidency. They both... I mean, this is something that's hard for us to understand about Jefferson J. Is that you know we can see Jefferson with all of his faults, obviously slavery, um, the, all the contradictions between Jefferson's high-mindedness and his and his actual behavior as a human being. But these other people, like Madison and Monroe, found some deep, deep admiration for Jefferson that goes beyond reason. I mean, it's a how do you account for that? sense that they felt that they were in the presence of somebody who was larger than any political calculation? I think that a lot of it would have to do, for, from Madison's perspective, Jefferson being the, the author of the Declaration of Independence, but I also think Jefferson's systematic revisal of the laws after uh, the colony one, it's effectively the colony becomes self-governing in 1776. And Jefferson proposes this systematic, sweeping revisal of the laws. And, and I think a good illustration of their the complementary nature of Madison and Jefferson is that it was Jefferson who wrote the statute on religious freedom, but it was Madison who actually got it enacted into law. And I think that that sort of speaks to their political connection. But Madison was often would often write letters with to Jefferson where he would disagree with him or he would offer ideas that were not really consistent with Jefferson. So I'll give you an example of that. As the Constitutional Convention was wrapping up, Madison writes this letter, this very bitter letter to Jefferson. It's like dated September 14th, 1787. So they're not, they, we haven't even gotten the signing date. And Madison basically says, oh, this thing's going to be a disaster. It's not going to corral the states. We need a, the, you know, the, the, the convention gutted my best idea, which was the veto of the state laws. Um, and, you know, these are things that Jefferson would not have agreed with. You know, Jefferson would not have. Jefferson and Madison ideologically, at least in 1787, are going to have very different views on how centralized power should be. But I think it's very interesting that Madison felt comfortable writing a letter like that to Jefferson and bouncing ideas off of him. And Jefferson would do likewise. You know, Jefferson at one point says, you know, the debts shouldn't be carried over from generations because the world belongs in usufruct to the living is what he said. And Madison writes it back and says, well, you know, maybe, but what about 
things that benefit future generations, like the Revolutionary War, for instance. So it's an interesting relationship in the sense that Jefferson is clearly the senior partner, but it is at the same time, I think it is a real partnership where the two of them have different views on politics, at least in the specifics, and they feel comfortable disagreeing with each other. Yeah, but who frustrated whom? You know, so Jefferson gets the Constitution from three individuals, Franklin, Washington, and Madison at the end of the process. And he says to Madison, yeah, well, maybe you take a few months and then have a second round and maybe you'll get it better the second time. Um, you know, this is a good start. And you can imagine Madison tearing his hair out and saying, this guy has no idea what we just went through to get the limited thing that we got. You know, Madison dealt with Jefferson without visible signs of his frustration. Yes, he did. Madison was, I think, much more pragmatic and realistic than Jefferson. So that would be one example. Another example would be during um, the uh, the ratification debates. Patrick Henry produces a letter uh, <laughs> saying, you know, oh, the esteemed gentleman, Mr. Jefferson, which, of course, Henry hated Jefferson. But Jefferson wrote this letter saying that nine states should ratify and then the remainder should hold back. And Madison's caught completely off guard and has to sort of say something to the effect of, well, we shouldn't be quoting somebody in a private correspondence. Something similar happens late in life during the nullification crisis. Jefferson's dead, but this letter that he had written sort of bemoaning the unconstitutionality of the tariff you know, another example, too, would be um, the veto of the bonus bill. Madison sort of making the point that, oh, well, you know, we haven't really given enough consideration to internal improvements. And, you know, the obvious response was, well, what about the Cumberland Road? And Madison writes a letter saying, yeah, I don't think Jefferson thought that one through enough. And probably I didn't either. So it's very, it's a very common thing. Uh, but, you know, Madison was useful in that regard to Jefferson as well. I, and I mentioned this in the book. Jefferson didn't have a problem with Adams winning the presidency. He, he told people that, well, you know, he was in front of me and in our stations. And then after the election, Jefferson sends Madison along a draft of a letter to Adams congratulating him on his win and commiserating with him on the phrase Jefferson used was our arch friend from New York, um, you know, pointed Barb at Hamilton. And Madison wisely you know, told Jefferson, don't send that letter. Don't send that letter. That's one of those letters like you memo to file, right? Like um, so Madison served that function throughout Jefferson's career. And even into even after Jefferson died it, during the nullification crisis, Madison was very mindful of his friend's legacy. So I think there is really something to be said about that. There have been a, a lot of books recently about Madison. This has been kind of Madison's decade. Um, you know, he's, he's finally getting sort of the attention and the scrutiny that he has so long deserved um, and had been under, I think, exposed as a, um, as a founder. What do you bring to the table that needed to be said here? My read on the historiography, my hi historiographical take on Madison is that it's the, the literature has been grouped into two sections. The first tends to be written by people who with a political science or political philosophy background like myself, who focus on the Federalist period, Madisonian thinking on the Constitution. And then there tends to be a more broader historical look at his entire life. And I find that the two really, to tell the whole story of Madison, you need to integrate the two, um, which is really sort of indicated by the, the subtitle of this book, 
uh, America's first politician. And my argument in the book, my theory of Madison or whatever, the, the sort of narrative thread that connects the, bio, the biography together, is that Madison's constitutional thinking that he develops between 1785 and 1789 is really just part of a broader picture of the way that he practiced and engaged in politics. If we take his constitutional thinking in the context of his life, a lot of the apparent puzzles in his behavior, like for instance, going from being an ally to an opponent of Hamilton, that comes into clear perspective. And then that also can in turn really inform what his vision of politics was that he sort of discusses in The Federalist. It gives us a, a, a way to read The Federalist in a more uh, comprehensive way. This is a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We're talking with Jay Cost, the Gerald R. Ford non-residential scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of the recently published James Madison, America's First Politician. You mentioned this famous conundrum that everyone who writes about this era has to has to has to try to make sense of, which is that at the Constitutional Convention and during the Federalist Papers publication, Hamilton and Madison appear to be close allies and in lockstep about the need for a much stronger national government. Suddenly, Jefferson comes back from Paris. He and Madison reconnect. Hamilton's view, I mean, his feelings appear to have been hurt that Jefferson seduced Madison away from him and, and talked him into being a, a small-R Republican instead of the, the good Federalist that he had been before. Try to clarify that. That is, uh, yeah, that's the one of the contemporary or typical views that I try to punch back against because Madison's opposition to Hamilton uh, really begins in January 1790, and it's much more intensive from the get-go. The major opposition is not so much centered on the Bank of the United States, which is the typical point, but it's actually really on the assumption of the state debts. And Jefferson was late getting to that battle. Um, and, and the difference between the two of them ultimately is they broadly agree on the necessity of a stronger national government, but they have profound, important disagreements about to what purpose should that government be used. Madison believed that the government should function like an umpire, neutral between factions in society. Hamilton's views, if I can simplify them, it really sort of analogizes the government I would to a head coach or a manager, where you sort of emphasize certain key players to help the entire team wins. From Madison's perspective, Hamilton's economic program was profoundly unfair. Gentlemen, we need to take a short break from this conversation, but we will return to it. We're speaking with Jay Cost, the author of James Madison, America's First Politician. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week's conversation is about James Madison, the new book written by Jay Cost. James Madison, America's first politician. And, and Jay, you are speaking to an audience on the Jefferson Hour that should be reading this book. I have to compliment you. I, I thought it was very well written, very readable. I enjoyed it very much. I want to go back to the book and start with the preface. Um, you write, Madison was, of course, a single person, a brilliant and deep thinker who made careful arguments about what Republican government should look like. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I. that's sort of a pushback to this kind of accusation or belief or suspicion that Madison was inconsistent. And I don't think he was. I think he was inconsistent in some ways, I should say, particularly his understanding of the Constitution, which is very ironic because he's known as the father of the Constitution. But I think it becomes very hard to find a clear constitutional hermeneutic where he he would apply this clause means this thing. I think that different clauses in the Constitution would mean different things at various points in time. So that, I think, is the one real inconsistency in his career. He's a difficult person to understand, in, in part because he was in politics, I mean, an extraordinary amount of time. His first political action occurs in 1776 at the Virginia Convention, where they write the state's constitution. And then his last big moment in politics is jumping into the nullification crisis in 1829. This is an extraordinarily long career in politics. It's a very momentous period as well. I mean, this is not a sleepy 50 years of politics. And so I don't think that you can look at somebody like that in a straightforward manner. You need to appreciate the evolution of time, but also somebody as important and intelligent as James Madison, I think you need to look underneath the surface of whatever issue position he happened to take, because his issue positions were informed by deeper beliefs that were contextualized in the moment. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. He poses the Bank of the United States in 1791, believes it's unconstitutional, so that later on he's going to flip-flop on that. There's no doubt about it. But the Bank of the United States in 1791 was going to be targeted to a very narrow slice of American society, primarily sort of the merchants in the eastern cities, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. 1815, on the other hand, he supports the Bank of the United States, the renewal of the charter. So what's the difference? Well, there's a couple differences. The first is, is that the bank by that point had become broadly based in large measure because of the work of Gallatin as Secretary of Treasury and the necessity of having a bank in the South and the West. Their economies had suffered the most during the War of 1812 because of the absence of the bank. So from Madison's perspective of the government being fair and neutral between factions, the bank goes from not making sense to making sense. Also, he believed that the government should have a more direct say over the bank. So the second bank has government-appointed members of the board. So these are the sorts of illustrations of, you know, if you just sort of take a shallow view of it, you say, oh, well, there's flip-flopping here. But if you look underneath and see his politics as being centered around balance, neutrality between factions, and more importantly, I think, the idea of justice, that, that the political process itself is supposed to distribute justice to factions. So the bank becomes a more just, fair program. But 
Also, when you look at his broader economic program after the War of 1812, it's incredibly well balanced. It's it's the sort of kernel of what would become the American system, balancing a Bank of the United States with a mild protective tariffs and internal improvements. So the government is engaging in an economic program that's going to do justice to the different factions in society. And I, and I think I think that's one illustration of the seeming contradictions that appear throughout our, the sort of history, historiography of Madison. Well, Actually, when you look closely, they most of them can be ironed away. I bring that up because also in the preface, you talk about other biographers who have been aggressive in breaking his life into discrete, manageable chunks. But you didn't do that. I mean, there's a certain point at which you have to because he lived so long. But no, I... I entered this biography, this this sort of endeavor, thinking that there was a core essential Madison and trying to find the the through line. And and I think I did reasonably well, but I I do think there's a through line that you can start with his, if you go back to 1776 and look at his opposition to the established Church of Virginia all the way through the nullification crisis, and there's a belief that well-organized politics will do equal justice to factions in society, and that's the purpose of government, not just the judiciary, but also the legislative branch as well. The political process is supposed to do justice. Uh, before I hand this back to Clay, I, I want to read what was really a favorite paragraph of mine from the book, and it, it also comes from the preface. You wrote, philosophers since the beginning of Western civilization have been confounded by a riddle embedded deep within human nature. People cannot create justice among themselves spontaneously. We are too selfish to place the needs of our neighbors or our community ahead of our own desires. This is the primary task of the state, to act as a neutral third party to settle our disputes and promote our common interests because we cannot do so on our own. In other words, we all need government and Madison was a master at creating it, right? Yes, I would say so. And I think many respects insofar as I, I call it the essential problem of government. I don't think it's it's solvable, but boy, he really did a good job. I think in many respects, his, his ideas of politics being the solution and well-organized politics as being the way to secure justice is really, it's an impressive intellectual accomplishment that in many respects has been realized in this country. It's really extraordinary. Uh, that you were sort of channeling your inner Oristia there, you know, from ancient Greek that there's lex talionis, people want revenge, there's there's vendetta codes, the furies get to us, but we create a system to channelize and chasten those energies and to produce social justice. So it's not just government, it's the collective. It's, it's all of us working, understanding that there are things beyond individual passion. I want to turn to the Constitutional Convention for a moment. The usual uh, dichotomy is big state v. little state, and of course we're stuck with that now. But Madison said that's not really it. The real dichotomy is north v. south, slave v. industrial New England. He saw what others there didn't see. He saw that the fissure line was already being developed and it was only going to grow much worse in the course of American history. And his he and Jefferson had worked out their their factional balance theories and so on, the expanded republic and all the rest of it. But but you will acknowledge that on this one, the factions couldn't balance each other out. Eventually, the system just had to break down. Yes, I think that's the 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 problem with the the Madison system of government 
is that the the South, you know, a Republican system of government, the South was just deeply, profoundly anti-Republican. The South was essentially asking for in a denial of self-government for a faction within society. Uh, the, in, the enslaved population were Americans who were you know, systematically excluded on the basis of birth and genetics from participating in government. And I think that as the rest of the country becomes aware of this, it just becomes intolerable. But, you know, I also think, you know, Jefferson and Madison are both of the attitude, Madison certainly is, that slavery is a problem that hopefully will just be dealt with in the future and disappear. And, and you know, one of the challenges is that the development of the cotton economy, because the cotton economy, you know, there's a, an enormous difference between slavery in, say, 18 or 17 82 versus slavery in 1832. The cotton economy is just such a game changer and ends up, you know, really kind of gunking any efforts to economically integrate the South. I talk about this in in Price of Greatness, and I hint at it in, um, you know, in this book, but the, the transition of John C. Calhoun is a metaphor for this because Calhoun was the major architect of the Second Bank of the United States in uh, the 15th Congress and had been Secretary of War for Monroe and was on a trajectory to the presidency, but by the time the 1840s, um, sort of reflecting the kind of sinking of the South into a nation within a nation, um, you know, he's completely transformed it. You know, I don't, I, I, I talk about this at the end of the book as well. The last chapter is the is entitled "The Serpent Creeping," um, and that's a line from Madison's letter to letter to my country, which he wrote around the time of the nullification crisis. And basically, be wary of disunion as the serpent creeping in the garden. And then I, you know, I'm, the point that I make at the end of the book is that the serpent is actually slavery itself. That that's the great flaw in the system. Yeah, I agree with you. And and so here's a question that, I, that has kind of puzzled me. As you know, Jefferson is is now the poster child for the unresolved race questions of the founders. He, he's being toppled. You know, there's even talk of demolishing the Jefferson Memorial. His statues are coming down. Schools are renaming themselves. Um, he's, he's really been deeply dis, uh, exposed here. And yet Jefferson agonizes over slavery in some very interesting ways all of his life. Madison is more silent on this question, what do you make of Madison sort of getting a pass so far on this question when Jefferson and even George Washington are really taking a hit? Yeah, that might just be due to the the stature of the latter two, that there's more <laughs> to tear down with Washington and uh, Jefferson. But I think you're right, though. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to juxtapose Madison um, from, uh, from Jefferson in this regard. I, I talk in... Um, the, one of the chapters is at one point, and I, the name is escaping me, but at one point in their retirement, uh, they both receive a letter from a lady who is a social reformer. Again, her name escapes me, but she wants to set up a kind of a planned colony for um, recently freed slaves, like a planned Isn't community. Isn't this Fanny Wright? Fanny Wright. Thank you very much. And and so she's asking both Madison and Jefferson for, could you please write a memorial on behalf of this? And both of them decline, which I don't, I think is, you know, perfectly in keeping with their status. But Jefferson encourages her. Jefferson has said, well, you know, we need to try anything that we can do. You know, every effort should be made. 
Madison seems to go out of his way to pour cold water on the idea like, oh, this isn't going to work. And, you know, there's just too many differences and it'll leave a gap in the field of labor in the South. And Madison's views on slavery are interesting. In this, in this sense, is that both he and Jefferson recognized that they were wrong. Jefferson agonized over it. Jefferson's own personal, you know, moral failings are in, intertwined with slavery because of Sally Hemings. But Jefferson still sees, and I think more importantly, feels the error, the the meanness of slavery. Madison's recognition was struck me as being purely intellectual through the course of his life. I talk at once, one point he, he writes a letter to his dad about an enslaved person named Billy that he brings up with him to Philadelphia during his time in Congress. And he tells his dad, you know, I think I can't, we can't bring him back. He's been in Philadelphia so long. He's got these notions of liberty and you think, oh, well, isn't that nice for Madison? But he, Madison goes on and says, to the effect, we can't have him poisoning the minds of the other enslaved people in Montpelier which is just an extraordinary sort of statement. And at one point, I believe Madison tried to sell Billy for books, which I think is really extraordinary. So, you know, it is, I I think Madison's failing, moral failings on slavery are not as personal as Jefferson's, but I think he was remarkably cold-hearted about it. And Jefferson is a magical thinker. So he's always saying, well, in the womb of time, slavery will somehow disappear. Our children and our grandchildren will be, you know, you, you know that whole line of Jefferson's thought. He's a magical thinker on so many questions, on the agrarian, for example. And Madison doesn't, you know, if you say that Madison is effectively the father of the uh, infrastructure initiatives of the, of the first half of the, of the 19th century and the era of good feelings, Jefferson is still caught in his Virgilian agrarianism right up to the end of his life. And so you would have thought that Jefferson would say slavery will just magically go away. Can't wait for that to happen. And Madison would say, no, it's going to take these 12 steps, but it's the opposite. Madison is kind of a uh, scratch. I mean, he's kind of a typical Virginia slaveholder. And it, you know, it's remarkable because Madison was such an effective politician. He usually got his way on most things. It's really extraordinary to see him outwit people, uh, really substantial people. I mean, really, the only person who ever really got the better of him over the long haul was Hamilton in the 1790s. And so one wonders what might have been if Madison had employed his Herculean intellect and pragmatic political skills to the problem of slavery, which he never does. It's it's never something that he dedicates any intellectual effort to. There's no sort of serious consideration of manumission or emancipation or resettlement to the West or anything like that. He's not prepared. And I would add to this, I mean, the most extraordinary thing is too, is that if you look at the debates on the Constitutional Convention, when it comes to the apportionment issue, that Madison is silent during that debate, even though the idea of apportioning um, seats according to slaves is a type of oligarchy that runs directly against the logic of the Virginia plan. The logic of the Virginia plan was, you know, emphasized proportional representation. So there's a hypocrisy there. It doesn't appear on the page, but it's, it, 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 you see it in his notes by his silence during that debate. Yeah, let me ask one last question before we take a break here, and then I know David has more. And it's, it's again, along these lines, 
So you mentioned sort of euphemistically or carefully that Madison would say, well, the differences are just too great, too fundamental between the two races, uh, which is a polite way of saying, you know, we can't share this republic with this this class of, of human beings. And Jefferson felt some of the same concerns, but Jefferson is a human rights universalist, at least in his study. You know, he, he gets it. I mean, I think he meant it in the Declaration of Independence. I think he means it when he talks this way. And I think Madison, and you tell me if I'm wrong, you're the expert, but Madison was really more interested in a specific thing, which is can we create a coherent American republic in this geography at this time and place. And I don't think he wanted to be distracted by the problem of slavery. I think he was willing just to say, that's a, that's a whole different category of, of, of human problems. And we can't have a republic that even attempts to be a biracial system. So let's just not pretend that we're going to treat this class of people in the same way that we're going to treat our fellow white citizens. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I would modify it, though. I I agree with you that I I definitely agree with you about Jefferson being sort of a universal thinker, very much a man of the Enlightenment, sort of thinking about all all manner of human questions. Madison, on the other hand, is much more telescopic in his approach to things. He he likes a good problem, I think, is sort of (laughs) Madison's view. He, He wants to get his hands on something. And I think you're right that slavery was not a problem that he was interested in. And so instead, I think what we see rather uh, is actually a lack of consistent views that he has with regard to enslaved people and whether or not they're inherently incapable. So like, for instance, he does say something to the effect of in his letter to Fanny Wright that African-Americans are genetically inferior, but at the constitutional convention, he talks about slavery as being based on what he calls the mere distinction of color. You know, he goes to New York on that famed trip up in 1790 or 91 with Jefferson, and they find uh, an African-American farmer. Madison's very impressed with him. Um, So I think he goes back and forth because I don't think it's really something that was ever on his mind. Um, You know, one thing I would add as well, it's, it's worth mentioning that Dolly Madison is interesting on this point as well, because Dolly is a Quaker and her father was a convert to Quakerism, and he was from the South. He freed his slaves, moves the family up to Philadelphia to become, I think, a soap uh, manufacturer. He goes bankrupt and dies, but Dolly, Dolly leaves um, the Society of Friends and integrates perfectly back into Virginia society, which I think says something about her conscience on this issue as well. I'm so glad you brought up Dolly. I I have a couple of questions about her. Right now, we need to take a short break. We'll return to the subject of Dolly Madison in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We have the great joy of discussing things today about James Madison with Jay Cost, the Gerald R. Ford non-residential scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, the author of four books. Uh, we want to talk about Dolly Madison and that really interesting partnership she had with uh, that little uh, that little apple of a man, that little half piece of a soap, uh, a man uh, who did not have her physical or her um, personality stature. But before that, I just want to say, Jay, on behalf of all of us, that we apologize in talking about race and slavery in the way that we have to, to talk about these men, you know, that it forces us to say, to let things come out of our mouths that we abhor, but you can't talk about Jefferson and Madison and others on race without attempting to understand how they saw these things. And it perplexes us and it troubles us. Um, And we apologize to our listeners that these discussions just simply can't not go on until we finally wrestle this question to the ground. But now on to happier Subjects, David. Yes, but noted and agreed to, um, and thank you for bringing it up. Jay, in your chapter 11, you write about Dolly a bit and about her importance, and you write that she had tremendous political instincts, but you also write about how she transformed the White House and that the Madison White House was really the exact opposite of the Jefferson White House. Could you talk about that? She was extraordinary. She was absolutely extraordinary. And and what she did for Madison, and in fact, what she did for the presidency itself, is really still to this day not fully appreciated. Dolly was an amazing woman. She was, she was beautiful. She was lively. She was kind. She could put a room at ease. And she was the best hostess in Washington, D.C., from the time that Madison becomes Secretary of State in 1801 until the time that he retires in 1817. And the importance of this from a political angle is easily overlooked today because Washington, D.C. is kind of a fun happening city. But in the early 1800s, there was nothing there. And so you would have all of these men, these men from Congress sitting around in boarding houses, you know, politics, politics, politics. There was nothing to loosen anybody up. And so Dolly, by inviting members of Congress over and diplomats and throwing parties, is able to cultivate a political following for 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 her husband. And this is especially important because as you as you referenced, Jefferson didn't like to throw parties like this. He didn't like soirees. And Dolly's parties had ice cream, they had card games, they had music and dancing, they had alcohol. Um, it was, you know, it, it was lively and it and it and it was good for Madison, James Madison, because he had his whole life had been not a particularly sociable in large groups. He was, I think, um, Theodoric Bland's wife remembered him as a stiff, gloomy creature back in the 1780s. But with Dolly, he loosened up and actually had a reputation in the 1800s for being a good dancer, go figure. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who is the Federalist candidate in 1808, commented on this, said, you know, I might have been able to defeat James Madison. The problem is, is that I was running against James and Dolly. <laughs> because again, you know, because again, you know, the, the thing to bear in mind, especially in the 1808 election, um, where this is a time where the nomination process is going to be housed within uh, Congress, the Congressional Caucus, and members of Congress are going to have a lot of influence on their constituencies back home. So the fact that Donnelly was so effective in sort of managing that, especially also, I would add, that you weren't, nobody was really, it was frowned upon to actively campaign. 
So campaigning for office had to be kind of done indirectly, which she was just perfect at. You talk about, you know, the White House when Jefferson was there, it was drafty, it was unfinished, the roof leaked, and Dolly wanted to change all that. Jefferson liked the one-on-one dinner parties. He didn't want, as you say, the big soirees, but but Dolly did. So I have a bone to pick with your man, Madison. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Meriwether Lewis scholar. So Lewis... And Jefferson had a very interesting relationship. Jefferson retires, and of course it's Jefferson, so he washes his hands of the whole thing and says he's not going to take any newspapers and he's only going to read Thucydides and he's only going to garden and so on. Meanwhile, Meriwether Lewis gets at odds with the War Department and he's in danger of being recalled. And Secretary of War Easton writes to Lewis out in St. Louis and says, you're really in trouble for your vouchers And by the way, the president of the United States agrees with me. If Jefferson had still been president, he would have protected Lewis. But Madison did not have the same interest in the West that Jefferson did, did he? No, he did not. And I think that's probably because Madison was not the, we talked about this before, that Madison was not the dreamer that Jefferson was, Uh, which is not to say Madison was uninterested in the West. He had, uh, you know, believed that there was a need for Western settlement. He was sort of the belief that human populations would eventually out eat their food supplies. And so there would be continuous and yes, exactly. So it's continuous unending misery and that the West would ameliorate it. Um, He had a pragmatic streak about the West. So Jefferson, after the Louisiana purchase um, is contemplating a constitutional amendment and Madison sort of says no. And John Quincy Adams in his diary had a conversation with Madison over this and Madison said, we'd leave it. Quincy Adams quotes him as saying, we'll leave it to the candor of the American people. So in other words, if the people think we violated the constitution, they'll vote us out of office. And Madison's very pragmatic in that sense. But no, I would say that Madison is not um, much of a dreamer with respect to the West. And I, and I also think that Madison's presidency is just embroiled with the question of the the problem of being caught between Britain and France is, I mean, really dominates his presidency until 1815. Um, and it doesn't go well until suddenly the whole problem just completely disappears. So, um, you know, that's about the best I can say for his lack of defense for Mr. Lewis. Poor Lewis, you know, because it's a long way from St. Louis to Washington, D.C. And Lewis was having to make some very difficult decisions out there and spend money without proper congressional or War Department authorization. And Jefferson would, you know, Jefferson, who can live with debt pretty easily, uh, at least in his private life, would have said, well, we can probably smooth this thing over. But but the War Department wasn't going to smooth it over. And the president of Madison apparently was aware of this. And he said, let's get tough with Lewis. And it precipitated Lewis's last journey, which led to his death on the Natchez Trace. And so I always wonder, you know, in American politics, we have this discontinuity. Every four or eight years, there's a break. And what happens, what slips between the cracks between administrations is often a very interesting problem in American life. And you see some of it. Jefferson leaves office just in time to let Madison handle all of the unresolved issues with Britain and France that have been building up for for 15 years. Yes. And and Madison, Madison is left basically holding the bag. Um, But in fairness to Jefferson, it was I would I think you have to 
blame Madison at least as much as Jefferson for the events of from the embargo act onward, because it was Madison who begins very aggressively making the case that the embargo act, this is the long awaited grand Republican experiment in commercial warfare. He writes, he's writing essays for the national intelligencer in December, 1807, you know, shortly after the embargo has been enacted. Oh, this here comes, you know, they, Madison had been talking about something like this all the way back in 1789, the impost of 1789. He wanted to insert basically, you know, higher duties on British boats to punish them for not having a commercial treaty with the United States. That was his response. Uh, when Britain, you know, basically, it begins asserting the rule of 1756 after, uh, you know, they go to war with revolutionary France, Madison's trade war, trade war, trade war. And here we go, you know, the embargo act, which was not intended to be, to, to be that is really transforms itself into this trade war and it's a complete disaster. And Jefferson usually gets the blame for that, which of course I think he should get the blame as president. But I, I think it's important to bear in mind that really Madison was right with him all the way, if not actually leading the charge of sort of, yes, this is what we will do. We will use the embargo. We Rather than use it as a temporary measure to get our boats off the high seas, we will use this as a way to punish the British. Jefferson and Madison would be proved right in the long run that the world needs us more than we need them and that our economy was so strong that people would have to conform, etc. But it was a little early for that. This was their pet view. Economic warfare was a um, for Jefferson, a peaceful alternative to bloodshed. For Madison, a, a, a great tool in, in, in geopolitical strategy. But I think Madison was the architect of that more than Jefferson, don't you? I do. And I think this is where you can especially blame Madison in the sense that the Embargo Act was not a well-tuned measure for their endeavors. What they should have done is a non-importation act or something like that. The problem that they run into, I mean, the basic premise that they had was that Britain needs our food more than we need their, you know, teacups or whatever. Um, and it, it, let's assume for the sake of argument that that's correct. An embargo, a complete shutdown of trade with, with Europe is not the solution. What they should have done is continue to sell grain and sell food and cotton to Great Britain, but put an embargo on imported goods. And that would have maximized pressure on British merchants, which, and therefore, you know, get the Whig party in Britain more on the side of the Americans. That's not what they do. I mean, they don't really do that. They don't propose that until Macon's bill number one in 18. 10. But by that point, public appetite for this entire endeavor has been so soured that it turns into, you know, the farce that was Macon's bill number two. So I think there's a lot of criticism to be leveled at Madison as Secretary of State. I think that his time, especially in Jefferson's second term as Secretary of State, is the low point of his career. I, I feel like his presidency has been underappreciated, but I think that his his tenure as Secretary of State was very poor in the second half. There's a number of things in your book that jumped out to me. One that I was hoping I could get you to comment on. At the end of chapter 10, you wrote, when Jefferson gave his inaugural address on March 4th, 1801, he could not possibly have known that the occasion would mark the political death of the Federalist Party, which would never again seriously contest the presidency or come close to winning either chamber of Congress. Federalism had wrung itself out for reasons that Madison had been highlighting all along. 
Yeah, ultimately, the issue is that the federalism was, in many respects, an, a political program that was beneficial to the Northeast. And the reality was is that at this point, you know, in 1801, we already have Kentucky, we have Vermont, we're going to soon be adding, you know, Ohio and then Louisiana. And by the time of Monroe's retirement, we're going to have most of the country filled in. And federalism as it existed in the 1790s simply doesn't have an appeal. It, that's not to say federalist ideas were not solid economically. They were. But the politics, the, the, the fundamental short-sightedness of the federalists was in their politics and the kind of the elitism of federalist politics. And insofar as federalism has a future, it's, it's, it's a moderate federalism. It's, it's a moderate federalism of the kind of, of John Marshall not the kind of high federalism of Timothy Pickering or Alexander Hamilton. It's a, it's a fusion of federalism with Madisonian politics that really, I think, is why it ends up being influential through time. Because as a political system, federalism just, it was too elitist for a country that was rapidly, at least among white men, was rapidly becoming egalitarian and democratic and federalism is just was not the answer. And that's something that Jefferson understood. The genius of Jefferson is that he could he could feel this dynamism in the American culture and he knew that federalism couldn't possibly embrace that dynamism and he was able to capitalize brilliantly on that problem. Uh, how do you see Madison this for Madison in this for a person who who is not a dreamer? He's not a visionary. Um, he's a problem solver. He, he's not an idealist, although he has ideals. Uh, did Madison understand the emerging democratic spirit of the country in the way that Jefferson did? Yes, I think he did. I, I think he did. Maybe not in the same way that Jefferson did, but I think that he understood that. I, and, I, and I think it's significant that when the two of them go in 1791 and have decided that Hamilton has to be stopped. Their solution is a newspaper. Their solution is to take the case directly to the American people, so to speak. And, and if you look at Madison's party press writings, you will see time and again, he's appealing to the same kind of spirit that Jefferson is kind of grasping at there, this idea of the American people being a free people with a spirit of liberty and a, and a social equality. And his party press essays from 1791 and 92 basically amount to a warning to this people that Hamilton and the Federalists are hiding behind George Washington and trying to snatch away free government from them. And I think for Madison to decide upon that as a solution required him to have a kind of faith in the people. You're right. He was not the idealist that Jefferson was, but I do think Madison had a very deep, profound commitment to the idea of the Republican principle of majority rule and the rule of the people, if organized properly, could be benevolent. It's not as it's not as rhetorically powerful as Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. You know, Federalist Ten is kind of a slog to read, uh, <laughs> but this this, this there's the same basic kernels are there, I think. So, Jay, this has really been an amazing interview. I so appreciate it. There's a lot of brilliance in your book and in your argumentation. Congratulations on this project. Just for a minute, 
project Madison forward to the madness of 2021? How would he help sort this thing out? I would say that Madison, if he had anything to offer us, I think it would be a reminder of what politics is supposed to be. That, that politics is the venue by which Amer- the diversity of the American people are supposed to discover mutually satisfactory compromises. And that politics is not supposed to be what Teddy Roosevelt, 1912, you know, we stand at Armageddon and do battle for the Lord. Madison would be aghast at that. He would say, you're missing the point. This is not holy war. There is no destroying opposing factions in society. There's no final triumph. Politics doesn't end. It continues. And it's ultimately about finding common ground. And I I think Madison, I think he would say, he would ask us, is that what you're trying to do in politics? And 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 I think today, unfortunately, I think the answer is no. I don't think that people in politics, in government, in Congress, the people who are most engaged in politics, the people who pay and the small dollar donors on both sides that finance politics, is that really the spirit in which they approach political questions? I don't think it is. And I think that that would be Madison's greatest sort of reminder to us about what politics is supposed to be. A perfect way to end the spirited interview with Jay Cost. Uh, Jay, your book, uh, James Madison, America's First Politician, is doing well. We wish you every success. We hope you come back and become a regular contributor to the Jefferson Hour. Well, that would be a real pleasure. This has been such a great opportunity. Thank you so much for having me and it's such a great conversation. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.